So for those, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Eric Larson, and uh, welcome to our first course seminar on how to study the Bible. Um, we're going to spend the next six weeks considering what the, how it is that we read and look at the scriptures so that we can know God better. I wanted to start uh, the, the morning off, though, with a couple of questions for you. So just with a show of hands, how many of you feel comfortable studying the Bible? And I don't mean just reading it. Hopefully we feel comfortable doing that. I want to know how many of you feel comfortable studying the Bible. Okay, fair number of you. That's good. Uh, just a couple of you call out, uh, what's one thing in addition to reading that you do when you want to study the scriptures? Pray first. Pray first. Good, good idea. Commentaries, okay. Pardon? Google a lot. Okay, yeah. <laughs> dictionary. Dictionary, yep, using a dictionary, good. Any others? Read it more than once. Yeah, yeah. Those are all really great ideas. We're going to talk about a lot of those at various points in time during the course of our, of our time together. Um, so just to do the flip side of my first question, though, how many of you actually feel a little intimidated by the prospect of figuring out for yourself what the Bible says and teaches? Anybody feel a little intimidated by that? Okay, good. So we've got a fair mix of people. We'll be able to help one another throughout the course. Um, but the goal of this and the purpose of this class is to help you all feel more comfortable with the idea of studying your Bible. Whether you already feel somewhat comfortable with that or if you're just kind of feeling like, I'm a newbie and I don't know what's going on, hopefully by the end of this course, everybody here is going to feel somewhat more comfortable and confident in their ability to study the text and to determine what it means and how it applies to your life. So this is the first of six classes. This, this will be a six-week seminar, six seminar. And we're going to consider some Bible study tools and methods. We're going to talk some about how the Old and New Testaments fit together. Um, and we're going to look at the Bible's structure and literary genres along the way. And all of that, I think, will help you to figure out and feel more confident in studying the Scriptures. Um, there is a handout, like I said before, so feel free to grab those. Uh, and if you have any questions that we can't handle in class, you can feel free to reach out to me outside. My email's on the back of the, of the handout, so if you want to send me an email through the course of the week, that would be fine too. So just to, just to state it a little more crisply, here's the goal for the class. The goal is to equip you to grow in your love for God and in your discernment of how to live as faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ through enabling you to study the text of the Bible. That's what our hope is. That's what our goal is. But that's a big goal, and we've only got six sessions to do it in. Um, so there's a lot that we could talk about. There's a lot that we could discuss. But we're going to be, be trafficking mo mostly in the big ideas, guidance, structure. If you want to think of it by, by way of analogy, it's kind of like driver's ed, right? You're going to learn the rules of the road. Um, when you drive on the road, there's rules that you have to follow and governs, governs the way you should drive and use the roads and keep yourself and others safe. Um, so, for example, you arrive at a yield sign, you give the right of way. If you want to pull out from the curb, you check for traffic and use your directional. You follow the rules, but you still need to apply common sense and, and, and analyze each situation individually to know exactly what you should do. So it's an application of rules. Bible study is going to be similar. Uh, when we're studying the Bible, there are some simple and undeniable, well-established rules for how to read and study well. 
And common sense always needs to be used as, as well, especially when we take into account the genre and context of each book or the, or the passage that you're going to be reading. So that's what we're going to be covering in, in, in the next couple of weeks specific, especially. Now there's two main study methods that people use to study the Bible. We're going to be focusing on uh, one of them in particular, which is called inductive study, but the other is called deductive. So these are two different ways that we reason. It's not, they're not words that we use commonly, but uh, deductive and inductive reasoning. Uh, just to describe the deductive method briefly, we're not going to spend most of our time there, but I do want to describe it briefly so you know what it is. Deductive study generally starts with a big idea. So you have an assertion about life or about what the scriptures might say. And then you're going to go through and find, go through the Bible and find all the places where, that might talk about that big idea or that concept. Um, and once you've found all those places that speak to the idea, then you're going to draw a conclusion about whether the Bible supports the original premise or not. Um, this method is fine. It's, a, it's generally the method we use when we're doing topical Bible studies. Uh, or that's uh, the kind of method you would, you would be following if you were reading uh, a, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a systematic theology. If you're reading that, that's all arranged by topic and goes through all the different ideas that a Bible, the Bible has to say, all the places that the Bible has to say about a certain topic. That's deductive reasoning and deductive logic. Start with the big idea. Now, it's fine as far as it goes. The problem with it when we're talking about personal Bible study um, is that if you start with a bad premise, it can often lead you to bad conclusions because you've got a preconceived idea or a preconceived notion about what you're wanting to prove, and you're looking to get the ideas out of the Bible that might support your idea. So we believe that a more uh, useful and reliable way to study the Bible is called the inductive study, my, study method. Now this method kind of goes at the problem from the other direction. Starts with the small ideas, small building blocks, and builds them together to come to the conclusion of what a passage is going to say. So inductive reasoning starts with specific information, draws a broader conclusion that is considered reasonable or probable. Um, an example might be this. I have an appointment that's, a thir- that's 30 minutes away. I always allow an extra 15 minutes for travel time to get to my appointments. Therefore, if I leave for my appointment 45 minutes before it starts, I should arrive early for my appointment. I won't necessarily. Traffic might get in my way. There could be a lot of other things. But I should arrive early for my my appointment if I do that. So that's starting with the small pieces, adding them together, and drawing a conclusion out of the stuff that I have uh, ascertained from the world. When we apply this approach to the Bible, we're reading a text... So we're reading a particular passage, usually only one, right? We've got one passage in front of me. I'm going to read that passage, and the goal is to draw the meaning or conclusion out of the text. So inductive Bible study is about the faithful exercise of coming to the Bible without an agenda, reading the passage in order to discover, discover what God's agenda is or what God's message may be for us. Questions so far? Deductive study, inductive study, any questions on that? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> we, are re- we are recording the course seminars. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good question. 
Well, if anything, if anything comes to mind, we'll have a question and answer time at the end where you can, where you can bring those up too. So the question then we're gonna, we're gonna be addressing for the rest of our time today, really today and, and next week, uh, is how do, how do we do this inductive Bible study method, okay? So first, as we've already been exhorted in our, in our time a, a few moments ago, we start with prayer, right? Any Bible study, no matter what the method you're doing, you should start with, by praying through and, and committing your time to the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? So we want to have our minds tuned in and tracking on a spiritual track, and we get that through praying and committing our time to the Lord. After prayer, an inductive study in particular can be divided into three distinct phases. Those phases are observation, interpretation, and application. Or to phrase it a slightly different way, what does the text say? What does the text mean? And what does the text mean for me? The phases are progressive in the sense that you always begin with observation. You move from there into interpretation. And only after you've done those two do you go into application. Because you want to draw your application out of your understanding of the text and not trying to apply it before you really understand what's going on. So we're going to look at observation and interpretation today. And we're going to reserve the idea of application for our, for our class next week. So observation. The goal of observation is to interrogate the text. You want to be able to answer the five W questions about the text by the time you're done with your observation. Who, what, where, when, why. Who, what, when, where, why. Who is speaking to who? What are they saying? When are they saying it? Why are they saying what they're saying? What's the context in which this conversation or event is going on? There's lots of other questions you can derive and lots of other ways you can phrase those five questions, right? But you're, these are the kinds of things you're looking to get out of your observation time. Things you can do to answer these questions include marking key people, looking for what seem to be key words or phrases, making lists of things that are in the text, watching for contrasts and comparisons in the text, as well as noting expressions of time or geographic location. If you remember when we were studying John, we, told, we spent a lot of time talking about the festivals and what the festivals meant and how those gave context to the things that Jesus was saying. That's the kind of thing we're looking for here. All of these help us to interrogate the text so that we have a rich understanding of what the text contains, what's in it, not what we might bring from the outside, but what's already there. You'll find over time that good observation is what makes for good Bible study. To illustrate this, I'm going to read you a first-hand account of an early 20th century biology student named Samuel Scudder. This is about his experience entering the zoology program at Harvard. What he says has nothing to do with Bible study, with the Bible per se. I don't even know if he was a Christian, but the lesson he learned has everything to do with good Bible study. It's called Agassiz and the Fish. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz. I told him that I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, 
And finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well grounded in all departments of zoology, I purported to devote myself especially to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. We call it a hemalon. By and by, I will ask you what you've seen. With that, he left me. I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment, for gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. In ten minutes, I had seen what could be seen of that fish and started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but to return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed. An hour. Another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face. Ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary, so with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation, looked again looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I could draw the fish, and now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That's right, said he. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad you noticed, too, that you, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, Well, what is it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me, the fringed gill arches, the movable apocalium, the pores of the head, the fleshy lips, the lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin, and forked tail, the compressed and arched body. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more, and then with an air of disappointment, he said, You have not looked very carefully, why, he continued more earnestly, you haven't even seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again, look again. And he left me to my misery. <laughs> I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw just how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. That's next best, he said earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. 
Not only must I think of my fish all night, studying without the object before me, but what, is, but what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also, without reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the next day. I had a bad memory, so I walked home by Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite anxious as, quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides and paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wayful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask him what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said. And he left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That's good, that's good, he repeated, but that's not all. Go on. And so for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated, repeated injunction. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had, a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study. A legacy the professor has left to me, as he left it to many others, of inestimable value, which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and differences between the two. And another and another followed, until the entire family lay before me, and the whole legion of jars covered the table and surrounding shelves. The odor had become a pleasant perfume, and even now the sight of an old six-inch worm-eaten cork brings fragrant memories. The whole group of hemulons was thus brought into review, and whether engaged upon the dissection of the internal organs, preparation and examination of the bony framework, or the description of the various parts, Agassiz's training in the method of observing facts in their orderly arrangement was ever accompanied by the urgent exhortation not to be content with them. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought into connection with some general law. At the end of eight months, it was almost with reluctance that I left these friends and turned to insects. But what I gained by this outside experience has been of greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. So what does this story have to do with Bible study? The main point I want to impress on you with this story is is that Bible study takes effort, We can't expect everything to simply pop out of the text at us. We need to be willing to engage with the text and put effort into the study. But I also want you to note that the tools for doing this, the main tools for doing this, are common to us all. Observing and understanding what what is in front of our eyes and recording it so that we, we can get a hold of it later. Okay, so what does good observation look like, particularly from a Bible study or a literary perspective? Let me give you a few guidelines. Observe with a pencil or a pen or a laptop or an iPad, something to write down and record your observation. Just like Agassiz's student, you want to write down everything that you see see and observe in the text. Uh, Two, it can help to print out your text so that you can write on it directly. If you do this, then colored pencils or highlighters can be a helpful tool because you can use color to keep track of different ideas or themes or concepts or people. Number three, observe the basic things. Don't overlook the basic. 
right? Who are the people involved? What seem to be the main topics? Where and when are the events taking place? What are they saying? Just keep, start with the basics and don't be, don't be afraid of those or feeling like, oh, well, that's basic. I don't need to worry about that. Or I should be doing something more sophisticated. Basic is good. Observe and look for patterns in the text. These could be comparisons. They could be contrasts or parallelisms where they're trying to say the same thing in different ways. Uh, Repeated words and phrases are an easy pattern to pick up on. So uh, what I often do when I'm using color or colored pencils, I'm circling and I'm looking for the same words or synonyms all throughout the passage. And that helps me to connect ideas and know when we've moved from one idea to another. Right? Mark linking words. This is like, like, for, so that, therefore, and, but. Make note of those. They're important. And summarize why they're there. So, for example, a therefore should lead you to look at what comes before the word, summarize that, and then figure out what connection that has to the particular passage you're looking at. If you see an and, that should help you to see that there's a list of things in play. There's a bunch of things going on. If you see but, then there's some kind of a contrast being set up or a comparison being set up, right? So those are all, all some of the linking words, and we'll, we can talk more about what those linking words might look like uh, in, future, in future classes and future times. Write down connections you see to other passages in Scripture. This is number six. These could be direct quotations that are noted in the text. They could be illusions that you pick up on, you know, something that talks about creation. It's like, oh, okay, there's something about creation. That's an allusion to something that happened earlier in the Bible, right? So they could be illusions. As long as it seems deliberate by the author, then it's probably a good conclusion or a good, a good note to see. Here's a cheat. Most of your Bibles have a center column reference or footnotes at the bottom that pull in other passages that are connected to this one. Use them. Look at those cross-references and use them. They're usually, they're, there's usually helpful and good information there to figure out what this passage might be talking about. Uh, number seven, write down allusions to time or place and what significance they might have. This is the example I talked about a minute ago that we had in the book of John where we had all the festivals, right? The festivals were helpful to us in terms of understanding that. So allusions to time or place or what might be going on in the broader culture. Uh, number eight, Mark down terms of conclusion. Thus, for this reason. Again, therefore is when we talked about. That's a connecting word, but it's also a conclusionary word. Um, and, wh- and again, put a note in the margin or on, a, on your piece of paper about what significance those terms of conclusion might have. Um, and again, those are going to be those are going to be places where you'll see transitions in the text too. I've finished talking about this idea, and now I'm starting about to talk about a new idea, right? So that that'll be helpful to to understand when those transitions happen and take place. Then number nine, and this one's really important: write down questions. And again, I want to go back to the idea of don't be afraid of the basic, right? I know I feel tempted sometimes when I'm writing down questions or trying to think of questions that I might have about a text to say, the questions that I have are supposed to somehow be significant or questions that I somehow I'm not supposed to know the answer to that I'm going to have to go and um, and find out, you know, brand new information that I've never known before. And sometimes that's true, but don't be afraid of basic questions either. So these might be questions of fact. We're going to look at a passage in a minute uh, that mentions Susa. Where is Susa? 
Where, where, does that, where in the world is that? And how does that help me understand what might be going on here? They could be questions of speculation. Why is, it, why is the remnant of Israel in great trouble and shame? I'm not sure why. Why is that? They, said they clearly are in the passage, but why? How come? Um, or they might be ga- identifying gaps in your knowledge that need filling. You know, what does the word propitiation mean? Big 50-cent word that gets mentioned occasionally in the New Testament. What does that word even mean? I don't, I don't know how to define that. Somebody mentioned using a dictionary earlier. That's where a dictionary comes in, right? But they might be, so there might be other gaps in your knowledge. You might say, okay, I know I'm supposed to know this maybe, but I'm going to write down that question. And then try to get the best answers you can. And, uh, and you know, we'll talk about tools for, for how to get those answers in future classes. But the idea is, you know, write down your questions and then try to answer those questions as best you can. And then number 10, one of the best tools for observation is committing the passage or portions of the passage to memory. Putting your passage in your mind and in your head, by doing that, you'll probably notice things just through the course of your, of your day or through the course of your week as you meditate and as you muse on what the passage has said, you'll notice things because it'll be rolling around in your mind and it won't just be the, to the 10 or 15 minutes or however long you're sitting in front, of the, in front of your Bible in the morning or in the afternoon or whenever it is you're doing your study. So we're, gonna, we're actually going to spend a few minutes practicing. Uh, if you open up your, open up your uh, uh, insert to the middle, your set of notes, you'll see a short passage there from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to give you about five minutes. And I just want you to spend some time with this short passage, just making observations. Got some space at the bottom. It's, uh, it's, it is double space. There's some space between the lines to be able to write. Go ahead and spend a few minutes making some observations about this text, and then we'll spend a few minutes sharing what, the, what things you saw and what things you observed. And again, like Agassiz's student, there's probably a lot more here than meets the eye. So if you get to the end, you're like, I don't see any more. Go back and look again.
Just another minute or so. All right. What did you guys observe? What did you see? What did you see in the text? Just go ahead and call out whatever you saw. November and December. Yep. Good. Other things again. Don't neglect the basic. Simple things. Simple things are good to start with. Say again. Written by Nehemiah. Written by Nehemiah. Good. Yep. Yes. Good. Other observations. Twentieth year of what? Yep. In the 20th year, that's a good, that would be a good question for us to write down to say what the 20th year of, could be a king's reign, could be of the 20th year of the deportation. There's a number of things that it could be. I, I did not look it up, but yeah, it's a good question. Excellent. Happening in Susa. Yep. Why, why would you say it would be in Babylon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, be the thing. Be the kind of thing you would want to look up and confirm. But yeah. Good. Other observations. Okay. Yep, and so hopefully we're going to, if we were to keep reading in Nehemiah, we might find that out, right? So cue to keep our, our, our ears to the ground for more information about that. Yep, good. Other thoughts? Yeah. Okay, why are they separated? Great. Dave? What's a, what's a what? Okay, yep. What's a... <clears throat> Uh, oh, it's because it's a citadel. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, a citadel or a fortress. Yep. So that might help us understand what some of the context of the Jews that are there are and what their concerns might be. Yeah. Julia. Yes, what happened. Yes, mm-hmm. what happened. So he's interested in knowing some information, right? Yeah. What's the trouble and why the shame? Good questions that we might look further in the text for or look to other books for. Yeah. Say that again. How are they separated? Yep. Yep. Who does, who, where does Nehemiah come from? Who is this Nehemiah guy, the son of Hakaliah? Is there anything that we could find out about him, right, that might help us understand the lineage of this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Julia? Say it again. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. So that might that could may be significant. It may not. We'd have to we'd have to do more research to find out. So yeah, good. You guys can start to see right. There's lots to see, and I'm sure that for many of you, you wrote down things, and then somebody else said something like, "Oh, I didn't even see that." Or you, or you thought, oh man, that was a good question. How come I didn't ask that question? And that's why, this observation thing, that's why we can go back again and again and again and again to these texts and just continue to observe what's in them and not be uh, thinking that I did it once. I'd spent my 10 minutes looking at the text and now I'm, I'm, I've known all the things that are there. There's always more to find and there's always more to ask. Um, and so... Um, you know, always be willing to re-engage with the text, even if you've, even if it's a text that you've studied frequently. Um, so, so that's that's observation, right? Our our desire in observation is to know what we got from the text, what came out of the text, what was already there. So the second phase that we're going to talk about, and, we'll, and this the, the this section's much shorter, so I, we should still end on time, by the way. Um, is interpretation. And the reason that this section is a lot shorter, actually, is because a lot of the things around interpretation we're actually going to cover individually in some of the other classes. So, so, so my goal here is to review a bunch of concepts with you and to kind of summarize them for you. Uh, but rest assured, we're going to be covering more these in more detail throughout the rest of the course. So if observation tells us what the text says, interpretation tells us what the text means, right? And mainly what it meant to its original audience. Um, let me give you, I'm, so I'm going to give you seven guidelines for interpretation. And like I said, we're going to cover these in more detail. So these are, these are intended to be summary, summaries of these ideas. Rule number one, context rules. Your interpretation should be consistent with the theme, purpose, and structure of the book in which it's found. If, it's, if it isn't, you've made a wrong turn somewhere, and you should ask yourself if you're considering the historic and cultural context, or are you ignoring these things to get a more pleasing interpretation, right? So it, just, it needs, to, needs to match up with the context. A sentence needs to match up with its paragraph, paragraph with its section, section with its book, book with the whole Bible, right? Those, the, that's the kind of the tree that we're looking to build. Context helps us to determine what the meaning is and when it's right. Uh, parallel idea number two let scripture interpret scripture always seek the full counsel of the word of God if your interpretation runs contrary to, to clear and established doctrines of the faith then you, do, you need to reconsider your interpretation no part of the Bible will ever undermine another part sometimes sorting out what initially seems like a contradiction takes work but this is the point of studying the Bible so we can work all these things out and come up with a consistent understanding. Now, I think as you read the Bible, you're actually going to be amazed at how consistent it actually is in its teaching on things like sin, the nature of man, the character of God, um, and, and other topics that are connected to those. Number three, never base your convictions on an obscure passage of Scripture. An obscure passage is one that which the meaning isn't clear even when the proper principles of interpretation are used. There are passages that are hard to understand. Um, so if you're basing your conviction, something you're going to put a stake in the ground on based on one of these passages that it's hard to understand, you're going to run into trouble. Um, and again, we go back to number two, let, the, let tr- Scripture interpret Scripture and l- let your conclusions be consistent acro- with what the Scriptures teach across the board and not just what might be 
what might be said in one spot. Number four, uh, interpret scripture as the author intends it to be read. Um, Take the words you read in the Bible at face value. And usually and often this will mean interpreting quote unquote literally, right? By which I mean, it is what it says. So if it says that God created the heavens and the earth, it means exactly that. God created the heavens and the earth. Um, But of course, not all of the Bible intends to be taken quote unquote literally. Uh, Later in the class, we are going to talk through about genre, imagery, symbolism, prophecy. We're going to talk about all of those things. And, you know, understanding the genre of scripture will help you understand how the author intended his words to be taken and allow you to apply this, this rule. So interpret scripture as the author intends. Uh, And number five, uh, look for the main message in the passage. One of your first jobs when you get past your observation stage and you get into your interpretation stage should be to say, what's the main idea here? What's the big idea? Even if you're only taking a couple verses like we did in Nehemiah with one through three, that's what I'm looking at. So what's the main idea that's here? And anything else you draw from the passage should be connected to that main idea. Now it's going to be better if you take a bigger, if you take your main idea from the larger context, you know, the whole book, what's the main idea of the book? Okay, the main idea of the book is this, I conclude that, you're probably off base, right? So looking for the main idea of the passage um, is, is uh, one of the rules of interpretation you want to imply. What's the clear purpose? Any conclusions you come to need to be connected to it. Number six, number six. Study the Old Testament in view of Jesus and the New Testament. Um, it's, it, there's a popular, it's popular and in vogue today to say, well, the, I need to look at the Old Testament as the Old Testament. I need to ignore the New Testament. Well, the problem is, is that ignores the fact that God gave us the New Testament to help us to understand what the Old Testament says. So study the Old Testament with, in view of Jesus and the New. Ask how an Old Testament passage fits within the teaching of the New Testament. Ask yourself, and you can do that by asking yourself these kinds of questions. Where does this passage fit in the timeline of redemptive history? How does this passage point to Jesus? How does this truth about Old Testament Israel relate to the New Testament idea of the church? How is this passage foundational for an understanding of New Testament Christianity? Again, we're talking about Old Old Testament passages here, right? That's what we're looking at. And then... Uh, finally, which New Testament passages help me to answer these questions? So I'm confused about this Old Testament idea. What about the New Testament can help me uh, in informing me and, t- and teaching me about what this Old Testament passage might actually be saying? And then number seven, which is the flip side of, of number six, adopt the New Testament's attitude towards the old. So train your brain to make connections between New Testament passages. So when you're reading in the New Testament, connect those to what has come before in the Old Testament. And here's three questions that can help you do that. How is this passage a fulfillment, this New Testament passage, a fulfillment of something in the Old Testament? Frequently, often it will be. You'll be able to trace it back and say, this was talked about in the Old Testament, and here's its fulfillment. Isn't God good? Uh, How is this New Testament idea different from or similar to an Old Testament teaching? Uh, Number three, in what way does this New Testament passage clarify or unveil or fulfill or amplify something from the Old Testament? Those are three questions that you can kind of use to help you see 
what the Old Testament brought and how the New Testament makes it clear. So these seven guidelines are essential to interpretation and it's only after we properly interpret a passage that we can move on to applying it. Right? So we have to have observed what the text says, have some understanding of what the text has, was intended to mean, what did the author intend it to mean, and now we can move on to application. And application is what we're going to talk about next week. Okay? So uh, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Is, are there any questions that you have about uh, what we've discussed so far? Chris? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So this is number six. Study the Old Testament in view of Jesus and the New Testament. The questions that we looked at there are, where does this passage fit into the timeline of redemptive history? How does this passage point forward to Jesus? How does the truth in this Old Testament passage about Israel relate to the New Testament idea of the church? Right? How is this passage foundational for an understanding of New Testament Christianity? In other words, the idea that the Old Testament laid the foundation, provided concepts there that the New Testament built on top of, right? So how, does this, how is this passage foundational for an understanding of New Testament Christianity? And then which specific New Testament passages can I look at? Again, column reference, footnote references are going to be helpful here. How do I look forward into the New Testament and see passages that can help me with answering these questions and understanding these realities? Yeah, good question. Other questions? Thank you. Uh, yeah, that was from Agassiz and the Fish. Um, I might have to get it to you afterwards, but um, facts are stupid. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought into connection with some general law. And that's, and that's really a, th- this idea. We're looking at individual pieces. We're going to observe individual pieces, but we need the interpretation layer to be able to draw all of them together and give them meaning, right? Good. Other questions? Can you reread the um, different uh, questions you had for different um, Under number seven? The, yeah, number seven. <laughs> sure. Uh, how is this passage a fulfillment of something promised in the Old Testament? How is this New Testament idea different from or similar to an Old Testament teaching? And in what ways does this New Testament passage clarify, unveil, fulfill, or amplify something from the Old Testament? Other questions, just quick? We're going to have to close it down, but if there's... And catch me after class if, the, if, you think, if there's something else that comes to mind. My email's on the, in the, on the back of the handout. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about interpretation, um, sorry, uh, application. Uh, so think on these things over the course of the week, um, and we'll have another opportunity for questions uh, during the course of that, that class. Let me close for us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for providing for us your word. Um, Lord, help us to become better students of it. 
Lord, like this zoology student who needed to become a, a student of a particular fish for so long, <laughs> Lord, let us, have, let us be willing to put that kind of effort and energy into studying even just one passage of the Scriptures. And then let's build on that over and over and over again until we are good students of your, of your Word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would use this class in our lives mightily, that you would help us to understand your word. And as a result of understanding your word, Lord, we want to be able to live better and more faithful lives as your children. So, Lord, we ask for that. We, ask, we commit ourselves to that, and we, and we ask for your help and the help of your spirit to accomplish it. We praise you and thank you for all of this, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.